0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. I'm Tim Ryder. We have a very special guest with us today, uh, former Mets executive director of baseball operations, senior director of baseball operations, excuse me, uh, Mr. Adam Fisher. Adam, how's it going?
1: Doing well, Tim. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. This is, uh, this is fun as, as we anticipate, uh, you know, uh, another, another Mets season coming up. I think, uh, I think the club looks good. Uh, obviously we're in uncertain times. People want to hear positive right now. Uh, hopefully they'll, they'll be playing in front of some fans. But I know we, 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 we were talking before we started here about an empty stadium and that seems like that's a possibility at this point.
0: It's kind of mind blowing, isn't it?
1: It is. It's crazy. It really is. I think just, uh, you know, everyone be safe and, and wash your hands and, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get, we'll get through all this. But, uh, but I think we've got some strange times coming up.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, and this is just general talk. Everybody's kind of got to be diligent. Um, You know, if by chance you are exposed or a family member was exposed, you have to self-quarantine yourself, folks. (laughs) You have to do the right thing. It's not just you. It's, uh, you know, you're putting others at risk. And, you know, just the way things are, if you have kids, they're in schools, those places are like, those places are like test tubes on a regular day. So everybody be safe. But yes, it's looking like, we could be seeing opening day baseball uh, played in front of empty stadiums. And I'm not sure my mind is quite ready for that, but uh, there'll certainly be eyes, <laughs> eyes on screens that day.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think anyone is. And, and I'd reiterate, you know, just, just be smart. Cause it's not about you. And, and, you know, um, those of us who are relatively young and healthy um, you know, it's, it's more about, about more at risk populations and people um, I, I think the Warriors are giving us, at least right now, they're giving us a preview. So we'll see um, how all this goes. But, but yeah, it's gonna, it is is pretty mind-blowing to think that we could have, you know, 15 games going on opening day in front of empty stadiums.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. And um, I think the media, uh, you know, lacking access or direct access that they've fought so hard for over the last few decades to, to secure. Um, I believe they should be included in the. I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just the, the important folk that need to be included. Um, okay. I think that they should be included in that in that I guess bubble. But uh, you know we'll have to see how that pans out because uh, a big shout out to the media folks, the beat writers, everybody. Because uh, as a blogger, we wouldn't have a whole lot to uh, to work off of without those folks' hard work. But yeah, uh, yeah we shall see. But uh, Adam, I, I do want to ask you a, a whole lot about, I guess, the inner workings of a front office, because I think mm-hmm. myself personally and, and the listeners, um, we're, we're kind of, I guess you could even say over the last decade or two, um, at a crossroads in the game where for a century, uh, the eye test and your contemporary traditional stats were pretty much the benchmark for, uh, player evaluation. And as technology and I guess as technology is advanced and as front offices have begun to include, uh, I guess in the beginning, it was more of outside the box hires, but Mm -hmm. you know, capable, intelligent, um, just, uh, excuse me, statistically minded folks that, um, are just kind of suited to this new aspect of the game. And you were one of those. pioneers, I guess you could say, to kind of take that step, um, into a front office from a, I guess you could say an unconventional background Sure. uh, at the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I yeah,
0: you know, from your time coming into a front office to the time that you left, which was only a couple of years ago, um, how much, you know, how different were things run or how, I mean, and, and this is going through a couple of different regimes in New York, but, um, just the overall aspect of, of evaluation. Uh, how, how did that process evolve?
1: Yeah. You know, um, and, and I, I, have maybe told the story before, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I did, I did, uh, play a little bit of baseball in college, but certainly I would say I was, I would be a non-traditional hire, you know, uh, over the, the course of, you know however long the last 30 years recently not at all as you as you as you noted um yeah. but but graduating uh you know graduating from college and uh, not having a professional playing background uh at that point there was a bit of a path you know you had i uh, obviously people point to Paul DePodesta who I I got a chance to work with um sure. but you had a couple of teams um particularly the Indians also the Red Sox uh who were hiring kind of Guys who've maybe played in college, maybe not, uh, who played at sort of Ivy League schools or or some of the better colleges um, that had maybe a non or at least were, were willing to think outside the box and embrace uh, embrace sort of non-traditional statistics. I mean, we're talking about, you know, on at the time, really circulating the concept that on-base percentage was important, which is, is crazy, you know, t- roughly 20 years later. But you're talking about like a, a lot of the stuff that Rob Nyer was doing on ESPN in the late nineties or early two thousands, you know, trying to educate the public and you had a funnel, you know, you got guys who became GMs, uh, you know, Ben Sherrington, uh, Neil Huntington from the Indians, uh, certainly Theo, uh, you know, a lot of guys with the, with the Indians and, and, and Red Sox, uh, who paved the way, Billy Bean and Dave Forrest. And, um, I think they're. To, okay. to Harvard with, with or with his RGMs. Uh Dave Force, Jeff Bradish, Peter Woodfork. That's kind of crazy. Um so, you know, it sort of exploded, but now you've got these front offices that have twenty or twenty five uh analysts, um, which is which is crazy. But anyway, I digress just talking about the history of it. Um when I got hired uh as an intern with the Mets, we really didn't have a statistics department at all. Um Jim Duquette gave me some great advice. I wasn't really a math guy. Uh, I had just scouted the Cape Cod Baseball League for Peter Gammons before I got my internship with the Mets. And it really helped me in terms of just understanding what scouts were looking for, getting my foot in the door in terms of traditional player evaluation. Uh, But what Jim told me was basically uh, what you might want to call the Moneyball Revolution. That was coming. Uh, he He totally foresaw it and basically said, listen, if, if you want to get a job here full time, you need to just essentially immerse yourself in this. That's where, uh, the jobs are going to be. And this was you know, 2000, 2003. Um, and so that's what I did. You know, I read everything I could get my hands on, uh, about advanced baseball statistics, you know, uh, what was, what was sort of considered cutting edge at the time? What was baseball prospectus doing? Uh, what were sort of the non-traditional, not your, what you'd call, uh, some of the, the blog, the bloggers out there who are, who are kind of coming up with interesting ideas, uh, reading Bill James. Essentially, part of my role is to help educate the front office as an intern, you know, circulating uh, research papers and ideas and uh, just trying to get people thinking in that direction. Uh, it was me and Craig Marino, uh, who was the Mets' first director of baseball information. But to give you an idea, and this is not, you know, look, people want to want to, sort of take their, their shots at the Mets, and um, the Mets have, definitely have a small, a small group, right, Tim? I mean, we, it's still, they still have a small group, uh, but this was not unique to the Mets in 2003. You know, Craig and I were the only ones doing statistics for the Mets, and he also had a role in the business operations department, so he wasn't even doing it full-time. So, you know, that, that gives you an idea kind of how things have evolved substantially uh, for the Mets and all of baseball. So that next year, 2004, uh, the, the Mets hired Ben Bomber, who, uh, who's now a professor at Smith. And, you know, of course, uh, Mets, 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 uh, fans and bloggers and, and folks like yourself are certainly familiar with Ben. Super duper smart guy has since, has since written a book. Did you, have you, have you checked out his book or, or, or read any of his stuff?
0: Um, I'm familiar. Just I guess I've seen articles. I, I have not read the book.
1: Yeah, it's a good book. I mean, it's it's the history of it's 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 the history of uh, of uh, you know statistics in baseball, basically. Um, but but Ben got brought on board, and um, you know he and I worked with Craig to uh, build a uh, a baseball database, essentially a statistical database that we could use. And um I I believe I've touched on this uh in, in you know other media in the past, but but Rick Peterson was kind of a big driver of that. Uh,
0: uh former he was heavily in, what's that? Uh former Mets pitching coach. At the time. Yes. yes.
1: Yes, yes. Former Mets pitching coach Rick Peterson, who came on board in two thousand four. Um wow. and he was a big driver of that. He kind uh, of saw, he
0: kind of saw the um saw the advantages of it.
1: Yeah, he he was Rick was super prepared in every way when it came to, uh, you know, trying essentially advanced scouting, um, and how he was going to teach his pitchers how they were going to use their repertoires, uh, how they were attacking the zone. So a lot of the stuff that it's, it's not particularly advanced in this day and age, but just, just sort of some of the, some of the strike zone information where hitters are making hard contacts, high slugging percentages, where they're swinging and missing, those kinds of things. That was sort of the uh, the first, I guess you'd say, the starting point of our statistical database. So and Rick, we went on from there.
0: I didn't mean to cut you off. So Rick no, yeah. kind of he would he would request heat maps and and such.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you could always get them from external sources, yeah. uh, but we when Rick with Rick we we decided that the best way to to create what he was looking for was uh, to produce it in house. Sure. So, Tailor
0: yeah. t- made
1: absolutely so you know it was interesting um and ben had no i mean he's just a he's just a really smart guy he taught himself how to code and built the whole database so wow uh, yeah it, it is definitely impressive and um very helpful to me we shared an office for those i don't know first first four or five years and uh very helpful to me to be sitting next to him any type of question uh from a simpleton like myself, he was able to answer it and flesh it out. So, you know, working with Ben so closely really helped me because um, I wouldn't call myself a math guy; I'd say I'm a baseball statistics guy. Um, but he could explain the math behind it to me in in you know digestible terms, and sure. that certainly that certainly helped me as I progressed. You know, in my uh, in my career in, in in a firm.
0: So let let's move ahead a little bit. So that was sort of
1: start of it. That was. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: Not at all. I'm sorry. Yeah we we got to get we got to get our flow working here, Tim. I oh, it, I don't want to be talking there. the whole time. So you, you 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 keep it coming.
0: Oh, we'll get there, man. Um, so I'm going to move ahead a little bit to 2006 because uh, Daniel Murphy, you had a very big part in I guess bringing him into the organization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now would that at that point I guess you were probably doing what you were just explaining to us at the time correct
1: yeah I uh so I started off my my first I started as an intern as as we just touched on and then my first job uh as a full-time employee was as a baseball operations assistant and I did that in 2004 and 2005 and I was essentially all hands on deck. I, I, it was It's maybe the most fun job in baseball when, you know, your front office is relatively small. I don't think the front offices are as small as they used to be. But basically, I was just a jack of all trades. I had, you know, uh, I got to work in player development. I got to work in major league operations. I got to work in scouting, professional, amateur, and, you know, working on the statistical side with Ben. So I, I had my hands in all the different pots. Um, but after 2005, uh, they moved me into amateur scouting and I was the coordinator of amateur scouting that first year that Rudy Tarasas was scouting director. Okay. And that's when we drafted Daniel. So it's, it's the only year that I was, I was, uh, concentrating on only on amateur scouting. After that one year, Omar decided he, he wanted me more focused on major league operations. So I went back more heavily focused on the major league side. Uh, my next job after that was coordinator of baseball operations. Um, I still got to kind of be a jack of all trades, but I was more focused on major league transactions. Uh, and again, kind of more focused, getting getting back to working a little more closely with Ben. Um, in fact, just uh, talking about sharing those offices and now my recollection, the one year that I was doing amateur, I was not. In, I was out of the office I shared with Ben. Then when I went back the next year, we they, they put me back in the office with them. So um, you get the idea of sort of the sort of the uh, the evolution of the job and 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 how that went about it. But I was mostly doing uh, helping out with scouting and doing the administration, helping with the administration, helping coordinate the scouts. Um, you know, talking to them about what players they liked, uh, helping order the players, uh, figuring out who we wanted to go look at, that kind of thing. And our st- use of statistics, to be quite honest, at that point was pretty rudimentary um, on the amateur side. Now, you know, and this is not just unique to the Mets. Every player, you know, you're pouring over their numbers. You're not just pouring over their basic statistics. You're pouring over their advanced statistics. You have uh, trackman data. You have how hard they're hitting the ball or how they're spinning the ball. You know what the angles are. All that stuff. You have all that now. Back in 2006. We're just talking about a basic stat line, you know, and whatever we can do with that stat line in terms of essentially like a runs created type, type, uh, basically looking at park factors, looking at an overall runs created, uh, number, and then also looking, trying to look at strength of competition and schedule. So those were kind of the things that we were looking at at the time, um, you know, when, uh, when we're looking at amateurs, Uh, not necessarily totally rudimentary, but very much so compared to what we were looking at now. And um, we had a scout. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. Sorry. uh, I was
0: going to say, no, 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 of course. Now, when you come across an amateur player who Mm -hmm. the stats stand out, but of course you have to gauge whether those stats are going to translate. Are there certain characteristics or tools that you, that you specifically look for in an amateur player? Or, or even when you're, I mean, even when you said you moved on and you're scouting major league players, whether it be players of interest or what have you, um, are there certain, of course, there's more information at that level, but are there certain standout characteristics or tools that kind of give you a, 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 an inkling that, hey, this might work out, especially in an amateur's case?
1: You know, perhaps it's, perhaps it's, it's, I guess it's just been hammered home so much at this point. That, you know, it's maybe self evident but Daniel Murphy is the perfect example of controlling the strike zone. And, okay. you know, look, we can have the most, the most, uh, you know, uh, just advanced statistics possible, but the reality of it is that strikeouts and walks, you know, I mean, that, that is, that is the core of your pitchers and your hitter. Yeah. I can't, he, had just outstanding control of the strike zone in college. Uh, his strikeout to walk ratio was absurd. Uh, he had way more walks than strikeouts. Uh, you know, at the major league level, he hadn't really, wasn't really a, a guy who took walks, um, until kind of he totally changed and it exploded as we saw after the 2015 season. Unfortunately, uh, because of some perhaps questionable decisions on our part, not a hundred percent for the Mets um and i would i'd take i mean not full responsibility obviously sandy's the gm but i would not shy away from being involved in influencing that decision um i i guess i would say i take full responsibility for what my thoughts were at the time um but uh but daniel was was just a truly advanced hitter he hit 400 he controlled the strike you know it was division 1 I. I believe he was the mvp of the conference and our Amateur scout at the time, Steve Barningham, uh, loved him. It was his favorite player in the draft. Uh, He might not have necessarily been the top guy on his list, but he he didn't necessarily have the best tools of all the guys in his region, but it was his favorite player, and it was the guy he wanted. And I was able to back him up a little bit with how well the numbers translated.
0: Now, seeing a player like Murphy, who I guess, you know, through the whole process of him coming on board, you pretty, sounds like you're pretty hands-on. Um Seeing him reach his, reach the majors, um, you know, develop in a positive way and eventually reaches his potential, his full potential, albeit not with the Mets, but um what, what level of like pride or sense of fulfillment comes with that?
1: I think it's huge. I mean, look, I, 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 uh, Daniel, you know, we he had his warts as a player. Um, you know, and and I, I wouldn't be shy about that. Uh, obviously, he he wasn't the best defender in the world, and he he tended <laughs> to make some some boneheaded baseball, uh, you know, base running decisions and some boneheaded baseball decisions. Um, and that was part of the reason why we let him go over, you know, over the years. But I can tell you that outside of the World Series, uh, watching Daniel make his major league debut, and I believe he hit something like a triple in his first game. I mean, um, it, it, it's a great feeling to, to be involved in that and help a player like that get to the major leagues. And, you know, it's, it's why a lot of these scouts do that. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's about trying to, trying to find, you know, young people who, who can reach their potential and be great at one of the hardest things to do in the world um and you know that it it, it is a uh, a tremendous feeling to be a part of that and and I would say that Daniel is one of the he's really the best success story um from that draft I think Joe Smith is another one uh got to watch Joe we drafted him I think in the 3rd round uh that year and yeah. um he obviously shot up to the major leagues and it was fun to watch him get to the majors but the fact that um, look, Steve gets Steve deserves the majority of the credit here. Uh, <laughs> he's the scout, and he's the guy who, you know, he. he I think he and Daniel are still very good friends. Um, uh, you know, they they developed a, a good friendship over the years. Um, but just knowing that it was very influential in getting him drafted and watching it come to fruition, it, it is truly a great feeling.
0: Oh, I could only imagine now. Moving ahead a little bit, I know you were mentioning that, you know, you want to find that player who's, uh, you know, the perfect combination of excellence on the field and just stand up off the field. Um, you, you your front office, well, I guess you, it, this was before your director of baseball ops title, but, um, you were, had of course, moved up in the ranks by that point. But in 2011, you, you guys plucked Brandon Nimmo out, out of the, the mountains of Wyoming and the, uh, and a, what is it? a PAL league? No, it was a. Uh, it was a. Yeah. Uh, but how, how does that happen? I know this. This might have been. I guess you were probably more focused on major league things at the time. But, uh you know what? What kind of? What? How should I yeah. put it? <laughs> what kind of <laughs> foresight goes into to saying, "Yep, that's our guy" in the first round?
1: It, it's definitely a leap of faith. I mean, <laughs> okay. there's no doubt. Uh there are a number of circumstances that kind of came together. Look. You know, despite not playing high school baseball, which is kind of funny, um, Brandon was playing in the summer, uh, you know, on, I don't know, travel or AAU teams. He was a consensus top 30 prospect coming into his draft year, you know. So he was no secret as far as that goes. Uh, it's It was just, okay, what, you know, how do you feel about this guy uh, who, you know, Hasn't really played against great competition. Doesn't play high school baseball. You know, comes from the middle of nowhere, uh, where very very few baseball players come from. Well, okay. So what are you going to do? But one of the big things is I think we sent like a million guys in there to see. <laughs> and that, that's one thing. You know, Chad McDonald was the scouting director at the time. Uh, he's since back with the Mets as a pro scout. Uh, you know, and Paul DePodesta Deepo, was, uh, you know, Depot was overseeing uh, kind of the the a, a little bit of higher level in terms of amateur scouting and player development, they both really liked Brandon a lot coming into the draft. And, you know, the big thing is, look, Brandon Nimmo might have the best strike zone awareness of any player in Major League Baseball. And we touched, I touched on, you know, what was important to me in evaluating players. And that's also something that's extremely valuable to Paul and extremely valuable to chat. So um, this guy just, he had an extremely, it, for a guy who barely played, you know, against good competition, you could still tell, I mean, amazing strike zone awareness. And uh, his vision tests, I think, uh, vision is obviously, you know, you could call it an advanced tool, but it's really important. I mean, look, guys can wear glasses and play baseball, but what is what is your dynamic vision? You know, what's your peripheral vision? What is... How do you how do you see moving targets? How do you your movement? That's what they're testing for, uh, and, and off the charts when it comes to that, if I remember correctly. And you know that's why you see a guy with who walks so often, and you know has such amazing command of the strike zone. Maybe sometimes to his detriment, you know, uh, as we saw last year. Um, maybe a little too passive at times for some people, but. That, that was a big thing for, for, for him as an amateur and obviously a sweet swing. He's athletic. He's a little bit awkward, of course, but, but, uh, but we must have sent in a million guys to see him up close and see what the tools looked like and how that strike zone awareness was playing in real time. And, you know, to be quite honest, Tim, uh, we were kind of in no man's land that draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, there wasn't sort of, We are kinda in no man's land for a number of of picks over the course of those years. You know, when you're picking like ten to fourteen or fifteen, yeah, it's sort of like there's not there's a lot of good players. You have plenty of guys to choose from, but is there that guy that you just you gotta have him? You know, you had Matt,
0: Matt Harvey, Matt Harvey the year before, and that's a college player, he's a senior, he pitched well, but you guys must have sought certain tools in him that propelled him to that start that he had.
1: Yeah, well, well, when it came to Harvey, you know, he came on. Um, unfortunately, some of the things that we saw with him uh, towards the end of his Mets tenure, oh, kind of yeah. trying to trying to figure out. Well, well, I'll, I'll circle back to it. I'll I'll tell you what I, what my what my overall point is here, Tim. Um, <laughs> now, some of those things that we saw later in his Mets career were plaguing him early in his college career. Uh-huh. You know, not really feeling his delivery not pitching necessarily with confidence like he had in high school. And that junior year of college, things just clicked for Matt. And he he turned into kind of the guy he'd been in high school and the guy that he was those first couple years in the major leagues. And it's funny, I remember uh, Ian Levin, who who's now senior director of baseball operations for the Mets, but who, uh, who succeeded me as coordinator of amateur scouting, I remember checking in with him and being like, "Hey, so who we got? Who are we looking at at number 6?" He's like, "You know, uh, Matt Harvey." Uh, that that we really like him. And this was pretty early in the process and I was like, "Wait, Matt Harvey? I haven't heard that name for 2 years. Like what? You know where where where'd that come from?" And he's like, "You know, he's he he it's clicking again. He figured it out. The arm is the arm slot is is back to where it was in high school, you know. Um he he's throwing 95 to 97. Uh, you know, with an outstanding breaking ball and, you know, we think this guy could be the sixth pick in the draft. And that's, that's what it turned out to be. Um, so it, things can be very volatile on the amateur side, as you can see. Uh, but that pick was not no man's land. You know, I mean, the sixth pick in the draft, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of choices. You know, we passed on Chris Sale, uh, right. in that draft who went number 13. Um, <laughs> and why do you think, I mean, you, 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 tell me, why did he go number 13? Oh, putting you I, on the spot. I'm sorry. Well, it's look how he throws. I mean,
0: Oh yeah, sure. That's a funky,
1: but he
0: had that velocity coming out, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. He was, he was awesome. I mean, he was in the major leagues that year. If you, if you go back and look, I mean, the stuff was there. No one doubted the stuff. It was just, was that arm action going to hold up, you know? <laughs> um, was well, that delivery gonna hold up?
0: Now, with biomechanics and I guess the advancements in biomechanics in, in baseball, um, do you think that those type of gambles are being taken more often because they can tinker and they do have the technology to tinker with certain aspects of a of a quote unquote funky delivery?
1: I don't know if you you know what? The thing is you don't wanna you don't wanna tinker with a guy like that. I think I think uh yeah, you can take chances on guys like that. I think the more that Teams are able to test players and figure out. Look, I think it's pretty fair to say that Chris Sale is Gumby, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and he and now he's having injury problems, but this is you know this is like twelve years later. So or I guess not quite twelve years later, ten years later. Um. So look, he's had an amazing career, and and, the, and that delivery didn't catch up to him till till these last couple years. So I yeah. think you can the testing and figuring out what makes a guy tick. uh and how he's getting into a athletic position when he delivers the baseball and how safe that is for his arm, uh, is allowing teams perhaps to make more informed. A player has a unique, you know, unique genetics and you don't necessarily know what's going on in there. Um, so you still have to have to have to take the information that you have, uh, and, and try to make an informed decision with everything, uh, how everything adds up. Uh, and you know, look, a, a lot of, a lot of what uh, predicts predicts future injury is past injury, right? So, yeah. you know, when it comes to players like this, you could have the most perfect delivery in the world. But if you have a high school coach that throws you 200 pitches a game, I mean, you know, it's like anything. If, if you're the most fit person in the world, but you, you eat burgers every single day, I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's it, – you don't know what, what the wear and tear is on the arm necessarily, and that's kind of the most important thing. But but certainly there, there's the more technology we have, the more advanced it gets, the more likely you and more willing you are to take better information. But at the end of the day, for a guy like Chris Sale, it comes down to the doctors.
0: Oh, for sure. And you know, you have to wonder if Chris Sale today, if Chris Sale were to be an amateur high school player today, with that delivery, um, would he drop to 13? That's just I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah.
1: But I'm not sure because
0: all clearly yeah. red flags were thrown up if he dropped to 13 with with all that talent at the time. But I, I'm curious. I'm just you know curious as to whether that would uh come into as much play as it uh, today.
1: I think that I th- I mean you know look I, even it's like light speed. I've been out of it for two years. You know. Oh sure. And I feel like the technology is moving at light speed when it comes to these things. I think that there's definitely at the very least a handful of teams that have the technology that could make a better decision on a guy like Chris Sale but there's there's plenty of teams that are that are still lagging behind
0: Oh definitely and um I know you just mentioned that you've been out of the game for 2 years now uh you are I guess currently the executive director over at 78 youth sports in Brooklyn do you want to talk a little bit about that
1: Sure sure uh for those for those Mets fans that are uh that are that are listeners and that that uh that live in in brooklyn uh around it's, it's essentially our programs are are based in the communities around prospect park uh okay. so it's it's a pretty big pretty big geographic area when you're thinking about brooklyn um our offices are in park slope uh our baseball our baseball uh program the part of the park uh, is also the the part of the park that's in in Park Slope where we where our the main fields are uh but right now I am I am uh I am the commissioner uh, and I had to reschedule with you multiple times here um, <laughs> for this very reason I am the commissioner of our baseball league and um I didn't I it's different than what I what I uh certainly different than my past life but um we have a massive baseball program uh we have uh now Thirteen hundred and eighty kids, um, oh my goodness, playing baseball from ages four four to seventeen, and um I am the executive director of this organization. We have baseball, basketball, and flag football. I believe we also have the largest basketball program in brooklyn um but uh but baseball is double the size of basketball, and uh we've got ninety eight teams and i was I've been making rosters for the last two weeks, so um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very different than making uh helping helping put together uh major league rosters. But now, uh do
0: you, do you find yourself poring over little leaguer stats? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Well, <laughs> you would be surprised they, they certainly the uh the coaches certainly want good players on their team. Well, I'm not surprised. Nice. I mean, of course they're competitive, but even at the younger ages. Uh but we also have travel teams. Uh we're the Brooklyn Bulldogs and uh we we go from ages 8 to 14 this year we we generally go 8 to 13 we don't have a 14 year old team this year we had a 14 year old team last year um but we concentrate more on the younger ages uh but but what's pretty cool uh for me with the travel teams that are a little more serious we we've introduced i I've touched on this in the in the past in some other some other media but we we've introduced blast motion uh with our with our kids and we're tracking all their swings. So it, it's pretty cool, you know, and it, it's a great motivator. We put, you know, we put uh we put contests which team has the most swings per week and you know, we can really do work. Look, you're not going to drastically change a kid's mechanics, but we really know what the keys are to their swings and we can help them get better exponentially with this tracking software uh that I think 26 or 27 major league teams use. So you know, a lot of that is one thing I've been out of it, you know, for two for two years. But uh, a lot of the a lot of the advanced technology on the player development side is being used in the amateur end. Uh, and with our travel teams, I get to help test that out. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not behind when it comes to some of these things. Um, so, yeah, so we've got the travel teams and we just wrapped up a very successful basketball season. And in uh, in the fall, we have flag football. And, uh, you can check us out at 78 youthsports.org. Our baseball program is essentially sold out. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the mercy of, uh, not just field space. We have lots of fields, but also volunteer coaches. And, you know, we, we can only have so many teams. We have so many coaches. So at a certain point, you have to plan. This is all, you know, this is all, uh, who, who knew it? Um, Plan basically in February, you have to figure out how many teams you think you're going to have because if you – you don't want to make promises to, to players who don't have a team to play on, if you get me. So oh, sure. um, so anyway, we're, we're pretty much sold out for baseball at this point, but we open up uh, every year in November for baseball. And, and uh, you know, you can check out – we, uh, we have a calendar on the website that shows when our programs are open for signups, And, uh, yeah, check us out, 78U uh, Sports.
0: Dude, that sounds amazing. And you know what caught my ear? Um, the fact that you're kind of introducing these young ballplayers to, uh, I guess just digestible information or advanced information at such a young age, you're kind of instilling that in them to be open minded when it comes to new information. And you're it's kind of feels like you're, um, you're, you're molding the future ballplayer. And that is, uh, commendable, sir. That's <laughs> all. It's really awesome.
1: Thank you, man. No, thank you. Yeah, you know, I, um, obviously, you know, those who are familiar know I had a very strange situation unfold, uh, that, that, uh, you know, led to me leaving baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I, after, after I was let go by the Braves, my first instinct was to, was to just get back with the team. And it didn't take me long, maybe a couple of days to reconsider that. Um, I've got an eight-year-old, two sons, eight-year-old, eight and six. At the time, I believe they were six and four. Um, and I was just never around. And, um, you know, when you're on a paid vacation, I think it makes sense to take that vacation. So, sure. um, you know, I took – I took uh, my plan was to take X number of months off. And, uh, you know, I ended up taking about eight months off. I was I – was during that period, I was on S&Y. Um, I was trying to kind of try new different things. And, um, but as far as a day to day job, I took eight months off. Uh, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. there was a chance I'd go back to baseball, but I really wasn't thinking about that. I really was thinking, how can I find a way to leverage, you know, some of the, some of the things that I learned in baseball, some of the administrative skills and leadership skills and translate that, um, to something else. And, um, you know this this job popped up uh the former former Mets uh team uh team psychologist uh and mental skills coach Jonathan Fader uh he is from Park Slope and he had done some work with this organization cool. and uh he let me know that the executive director was stepping down and he thought it would be an interesting job for me so i interviewed and uh ended up getting the job in and, and totally different world and i'm home now and I'm you know, coaching my kids, I'm around, I'm taking I mean, they participate in many of our programs. And uh, you know, I don't know what the long term future holds, but right now I'm I, I get a chance to give back to this community and really be a part of a community that, you know, I was I was not around much. So
0: Oh, so that's you know, it's it it's a change in gears, but it seems like it's working out for the best, right?
1: Absolutely. I, awesome. I, I would not I would not trade it. Yeah, I mean I I certainly had had no. Uh, I did not think I'd be here at this moment. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I not that way. You know, life throws you curveballs. Uh, you know, I, I, my goal was certainly to be a GM, and and I have some regret there that that uh, at least at the moment that that's not something that I continue to pursue. Uh, you know, running my own club, it, it would be you know obviously many baseball fans and executives, and I mean that's ultimately a lot of people's goal. Uh, And I was very close to being able to reach it. So it's a little bit hard to walk away from that. Um, But, you know, listen, you you have to have your priorities lined up in life. And, and um, I'd like to see, I'd like to see my kids grow up. So, so here I am.
0: Do you think down the line, once I guess situations change, can you see yourself getting back into the game?
1: I think so. I mean, I would never close the door. It's not something that I'm aggressively pursuing right now or even pursuing at all. Um, yeah. You know, I still have friends in the game uh, and I still talk to them. Uh, and, you know, if, if the opportunity presented itself, I would I would certainly think about it. Um, but and I yeah, I think down the road. Sure. I'd go back to a club. Uh, but but for the immediate future, it's not on my radar.
0: Yeah, man. It sounds like you're just kind of enjoying life right now, and there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a total change of pace, and um, and you know, it's uh, still get to be involved in sports and and give back to the community, and and you know, the 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 media stuff, and and getting a you know, the S and Y are just the great great people over there, and getting a chance to to be on TV, uh. Just kind of keeps me involved and and part of the action to an extent, and uh, I think it would be a lot harder for me if I was walking away completely.
0: Yeah, you know, you kind of found a happy little medium. It sounds like, and you know, again, you know, you it's just it sounds like you're you're really doing a lot with your time. Uh, I I certainly appreciate the time you're able to to give to Simply Amazing today, but um, really, man, just excellent insight and uh. We couldn't be more appreciative. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, hey, thank you, thank you, Tim. Uh, you know, you you do great work, and uh, you know, all of you guys, I, I, I you help keep me informed. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I truly appreciate uh, the work you guys do and uh, your passion for the mess.
0: Uh thanks, man. Hey, you, you know, it's a it's a labor of love. We we, we I mean, personally speaking for myself, I, I love every single minute of it. I mean, there's nothing better than coming home from my day job and getting right onto my laptop. But, uh, you know, this is this is what we do, right? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. All right, Excellent. man. Uh, Adam, again, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, you know where to find us, wherever podcasts are found. Um, subscribe, rate, review. You know the spiel by now. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again.